Welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and next to me is my friend, Niklas Sävos. How are you doing today? I'm really good today. Uh, really excited to speak with one of my heroes. Um, but uh, I think you are maybe uh, in a bit better mood than me. Slightly, maybe. It's my birthday, but uh, I'm sure it feels like yours as well. And as you say, today we will talk with uh, Michael Mabosen, Head of Consilient Research on Counterpoint Global at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. And he has such a vast uh, experience, I don't even know where to begin. He uh, has been uh, Director of Research at Blue Mountain Capital Management and uh, Head of Global Financial Strategies at Credit Suisse. Since 1993, he has been an adjunct professor of finance at uh, Columbia Business School, teaching the legendary security analysis course. Uh, what else has he done? So Michael has uh, been very influential with the Santa Fe Institute, and uh, he's also a thought leader on decision-making, um, the role of complexity in markets, as well as most topics related to investing. He's the author of countless articles and, and the books, More Than You Know, Think Twice, The Success Equation, and the one we will discuss today, Expectations Investing, written with Alfred Rappaport. So why have we chosen Expectations Investing? I mean, this is one of my all-time favorite books that has influenced me a lot in my investment invest, investing career. Uh, I think it's very well written and easy to read. And uh, one part of the book, why, what I think is, is really good, is that uh, the authors end each chapter with a, a summary of all the essential ideas. Um, and with Expectations Investing, as with all the wor other work uh, I read from, from Michael, I always feel a bit smarter than before, but also a bit overwhelmed, as uh, it's always a reminder of the work needed to become a great investor. So Expectations Investing has made me improve and also made my process to find new investment ideas more efficient. Um, so Eddie, can you tell us a little bit about the idea of Expectations Investing? Definitely. As you mentioned, it introduces a new way to think about a concept. And in this case, it focuses on the art of stock valuation. And we know that there are so many different ways to do that. And um, some use screeners to find undervalued companies. Others begin with a deep study of the industry, the competitive dynamics or um, company specifics. And the expectations investing inverts the traditional discounted cash flow method. And instead, uh, you start with the current stock price to analyze what expectations are priced in, in terms of growth rates, margins, as well as investment efficiencies. And depending on if those ex expectations seem reasonable or not, one can decide to do the necessary deep research on the company. And uh, we'll definitely get into the process during the conversation. Uh, how does the book uh, fit with uh, our quality rating here at Red Eye? I think it's, uh, it fits with the, within the toolbox that uh, you need to have as an analyst and investor in order to evaluate, uh, for example, a competitive situation of a company where, uh, where the authors take up um, Porter's Five Forces and Clayton Christensen's framework for disruptive innovations, as examples. Uh, but most of all, I would say, I think it's a framework for how to make better, de better investment decisions and become more efficient in your process. The first edition of Expectations Investing was published in 2001 and an updated version has now been released by the same authors 20 years later. To us, this is a must-read for every sophisticated or aspiring investor and it is a true honor to have one of the authors on the show. 
Here comes our conversation with Michael Mabosa. So hello, Michael, and welcome to Investing by the Books podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really pleased to be with you today. It's great to have you on, and we're really grateful to have you here and for everything you are doing for the investor community through your articles, books, and uh, teaching. And we're curious, what is your motivation to educate? Well, it's interesting. It's a, it's more selfish than I would like to admit, probably. Um, I find that for me, the mode that works most effectively and almost almost like the way I think about how my professional career is most fulfilled is a combination of input and output and input really is learning. So I'm curious about a lot of things and I find myself very gratified when I can go out and learn about uh, new things. But learning about it is only half the equation, at least for me, I feel much more satisfied when I can ultimately output it. And, and that primarily is a function of uh, writing and then ultimately teaching. And I think that the process of writing and teaching ultimately helps consolidate that knowledge and understanding in my own mind. So I, I don't really understand a particular topic or thesis until I believe that I can explain it to others or write it about it in a way that's fairly clear. So as I said, I wish I wish I could say it's some sort of big, you know, trying to help the world. So it, it really is something it's almost like an output of the kinds of, of the, the way I like to operate in general professionally. So we're really, really thankful for that. Also, I mean, even though it's, um, it's helping you, it's I think it helps others even more. So <laughs> Uh, and uh, the latest example was, of course, the updated version of Expectations Investing. Um, and the subtitle of the book is Reading Stock Prices for Better Returns. Can you explain what you mean by reading stock prices? Yeah, sure. And I just a little bit of background on this is that I read um, Al Rappaport's book, my co-author's book, uh, which was published in 1986. I read that in the late 1980s, and uh, chapter seven was called "Stock Market Signals to Managers," and it was a it was you know it was an extraordinary lesson for me, and just made things very clear. and And the argument he made there was, as an executive, it's really important to understand what your stock price reflects about the future financial performance of your company, and that is in terms of matching expectations and capital allocation decisions and so forth. So, what ex what reading stock prices means is typically investors try to think about what values should be, and then they compare those values to the prevailing price. And that sort of seems to be the default way of people doing things. So they'll say, oh, this business is, is trading has earnings or cash flows of X, and it should be traded Y multiple, and that gives me a value, and then I compare that to the price. As you've gathered, expectation divesting goes backwards and says, we're gonna start with the only thing we know in this equation for sure, and that's the price. And then we're going to ask a very fundamental question. What has to happen for this stock price to make sense, right, to equal this current stock price? And then we're going to introduce, you know, analysis to, to figure out whether those sets of expectations are too high or too low. So it's reversing essentially the process and starting with price rather than trying to figure out value. And I think the, the metaphor that's most apt for this is actually handicapping, horse racing. So when you think about making money as a handicapper, there are really two very discrete aspects to it. The first is understanding how fast a particular horse is going to run in a particular race. And there again, you'd be studying fundamentals, how the horse has done before, the current conditions for the race today, the distance, and so on and so forth. 
The second thing, though, is what the odds are on the tote board, right? What is the probability this horse is going to do well? And it's really the dis- discrepancies or mispricings between the odds and the, the horse's likely performance. That's the key thing that you're looking for, right? So you're not looking for who's going to win the race, which horse is going to win the race. You're looking for uh, mispricing, misprice odds. And it's the same basic concept here for investing. So we're saying the the stock price itself is essentially telling you what uh, is priced in, what the odds are, the likelihood of success. And then your task is going to be, can this company meet or exceed those expectations or will they fall short? So the first edition of the book is now 20 years old. And you write that changes in the world make the expectations investing process more useful than ever. So why is that? Well, I think that there are a couple uh, themes that have threaded throughout this that uh, have become even more important today. Um, one is that the book emphasizes early on, the for first edition and second edition, that it's very important to focus on cash flows versus accounting earnings. And I think if anything, and, and there's great work by Baruch Lev at New York University, he wrote a wonderful book called The End of Accounting a few years ago, uh, documenting this, you know, earnings have become less relevant uh, than they have they were before. So I think that this continued focus, or perhaps a renewed focus on cash flow, becomes very relevant. The second thing is we wrote a chapter which now appears to be even more important than it was at the time, and it was called "Across the Economic Landscape." That's Chapter Nine where we talked about a very simple taxonomy of types of businesses. We talked about physical businesses were the source of competitive advantage or physical assets, service businesses where people are at the core of competitive advantage, but they deliver their service one-on-one. So you think about accountants or lawyers or that type of thing. And then knowledge businesses where, again, people are at the core, but people create content once and replicate it over and over. So we talked about the characteristics of those types of different businesses in terms of scalability and obsolescence and so on and so forth. And that was, of course, relevant in 2001, but of course, even I think even more relevant today in 2021 as we think about the world today and the market rise of intangibles. You know, as an interesting sort of datum, um, these are now data for the US. So just to put it, you know, and these trends are true, essentially globally, but for the US, just to put a point on that, that uh, our estimate is that intangible investment and capex were essentially equal to one another in the year 2001. So if you think about them as a race, they're starting in exactly the same spot. Um, the most recent number we have is 2020, although we can sort of project out now pretty comfortably for 2021. And it looks like intangible investments will be double those of tangible investments. So you could call it roughly in one investor generation, we've seen a doubling of the relative relevance of intangibles versus tangibles. So that's the second one. And maybe the third one is we have a chapter called Beyond discounted cash flow, we talk a little bit about the concept of real options. And real options, again, have always been important. But um, with the rise of uncertainty, especially in the digitalization of some parts of the economy, um, I think that options themselves are more important than ever. And so that might be another thing that would make the concept of the processes and tools we discuss in expectations investing um, more more useful than ever. 
Yeah, we will, we will dig in deeper into all those areas in the, in the discussion. But let's begin a bit with uh, the art of valuing stocks. I think you have touched upon this already, but what do you see as the main problems with how most investors value stocks today? The, the broad idea is that people tend to use heuristics, right? Heuristic is a fancy word for a rule of thumb, and the rule of thumb that we all tend to default to are multiples, Right. So we use, you know, if you do surveys of professional investors, two multiples in particular appear to be by far the most popular, and that is the price earnings multiple and the enterprise value to EBITDA multiple. EBITDA being earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. So that's the EBITDA piece of, of that equation. And um, there's nothing wrong with multiples, by the way, just to be clear, but the problem is multiples embed lots of different economic assumptions that investors sometimes are unaware of. So for instance, a multiple will embed a growth rate, an assumption about return on invested capital that may be very difficult for an investor to really understand or unpack. And what we would argue is it's much more valuable to make bare those sets of assumptions so that you can have a healthy and thoughtful and informed debate about the company's financial performance versus burying those things in a multiple. So to me, that's the, still the biggest, the biggest issue. And uh, perhaps, you know, we wrote a piece about price earnings multiples and we sort of, we, I think we subtitled it something like bridging multiples to economic reality, you know, and I think that's the ba the main concept I want to emphasize is not that multiples in and of themselves are bad. It's just you need to understand what the assumptions are that would justify various multiples. So as I say to my students, uh, you must earn the right to use a multiple. <laughs> and to, that means to earn the right means that you've demonstrated that you've understood the underlying assumptions about um, about value. Now, the other thing I'll just say, which we we talk about very early on in the book, is the limitations to earning them, earnings themselves. And I'll just say something that you guys know very well, which is growth in and of itself doesn't tell you anything about value creation. Um, the key to value creation is generating attractive returns on investment. So saying this very differently, a company can grow quite rapidly, but if it's earning exactly its cost of capital, it's effectively on an economic treadmill, right? It's moving, it's, it's moving its feet faster, but it's not going anywhere. So this becomes, it becomes very paramount for investors to understand first and foremost, the underlying economics of the business and return promise that the returns the business promises. And then second, we layer in growth as essentially what ends up being an amplifier. Now, if you're earning your cost of capital, doesn't amplify anything because there's nothing to do, but high return on capital businesses, growth amplifies value creation and low return on capital. If you're earning below your cost of capital, the more you grow, the more wealth you destroy, right? So growth ends up being this amplifier rather than a thing in and of itself. And I think that most many, many investors and truly many executives think about growth first and foremost, when it really should be the secondary and perhaps even the tertiary consideration in, in total value creation. I fully agree that that's it's something that you hear from many many investors that yeah this this company is growing this much so it must be it must be valuable but 
as you say, it depends. And another another thing I quite often hear is that investors state that they have an edge by taking a long-term approach. So they, they say maybe that they look three to five years ahead while the market takes a, a one to two year approach or something like that. Uh, I'm, cur- I'm curious to know, what, what's your take on that? Well, there there's sort of two aspects. In one way, I think it's not right. In another way, I think uh, I think it, it, it can be right or I'm sympathetic to it. So what is the way in which it's not right? Is that if you just do the basics of mathematics um, and, you know, that's any sort of discounted cash flow model uh, and just apply it to any particular company, you'll find that pretty quickly you need to recognize and pay your you're you are paying for cash flows many many more years into the future than just two years right you're paying for cash flows many years into the future that's just a mathematical reality so that in that sense the market is paying for long-term cash flows and by the way that's not new news that's been true for a long time so people often get confused you know the well, we, we have a line in the book where we say investors make short-term bets on what are long-term outcomes. And I think people can't lose sight of the long-term outcomes. Now, where do I, where am I more sympathetic with that argument? Um, or where I think that argument holds some, some, you know, some water is this idea of extrapolation, right? Which is to say that what tends to happen is, uh, and, and, you know, if you talk about inefficiencies in the market, one of the, the main inefficiencies is deemed to be behavioral and of the behavioral work, it's over extrapolation, right? Which is we take what's currently happened, we anticipate that that will continue to be for the foreseeable future. So we over extrapolate what we currently see. And of course, over extrapolation would be for, for positive things and, and, and for negative things. And for many years, by the way, it was essentially the behavioral explanation for the value factor, right? So people would say, oh, growth companies are going to continue to grow and we're over extrapolate that growth rate. And then they're inevitably going to stumble and, and, and disappoint us. And as a consequence, they'll deliver substandard returns relative to the expectations. And by contrast, value stocks or these companies that are sort of not doing not growing very much and they're stumbling along but people think they're going to be bad forever and they actually regain their footing do a little bit better so they revise expectations up and those stocks do better right so that to me is is when you say well um taking a longer term horizon to me if i want to put a put a positive paint that as a positive picture it would be something like we are thinking about what the world will look like in three to five years and we're we're looking over this issue of potential over extrapolation, right? And we're thinking about the longer term horizon. And, you know, I think we start the, the strategy chapter with something along the lines of saying, you know, the surest way to anticipate revisions and expectations is to understand changes in the competitive positioning of the business. And to that degree, that statement of looking out longer would be a very, I think, a very solid way to think about that. So, so along with an answer to your question, in some ways, mathematically, it's not a really correct thing. But when you're thinking about expectations and strategy and positioning um, and over extrapolation, that would be, a, I think, a pretty reasonable way to think about it. So if we go into the tools of expectations investing that you are highlighting in the book, and you also have a great website with tools and uh, lots of information, uh, your process consists of three steps. Uh, the first is to estimate what expectations are priced in or what you call the price implied expectations. How do one do that? So they're really, um, you know, as we pointed out, the key is, is to start with the current stock price. So that's the one thing that we know. And then we attempt to gather 
information about the key value drivers of the business. And whereas the consensus uh, is probably a good starting point, I will absolutely quickly concede that there's some art to this. It's not pure science. But you want to get a sense of what the market believes uh, are longer-term growth rates, longer-term margins, uh, capital intensity, so much working capital, fixed capital will be required, some estimate of the cost of capital, and so forth. And then you're going to say, uh, when I put these into the model, how many years of <clears throat> value-creating growth is in, in, in reflected in today's stock price? All right, so... Essentially, when you're trying to solve for price, there are three variables that <clears throat> you need. And, and obviously, we, we, we have to hold some things constant. There's a cash flow stream, which is going to be determined by sales and margins and capital t intensity. There's a discount rate, which is going to be your estimate of the cost of capital. I think we can talk more about that in just a moment. And then there's going to be an explicit forecast period. And the forecast period in, in our context is a very, it has a very specific economic significance. The forecast period says, how long will this company be able to find value-creating investments? And the premise is that value-creating investments for any particular company are going to be finite for a couple of reasons. One is market saturation, right? Eventually, every market uh, essentially gets saturated. And second is because of competition. So if you're doing something that's particularly lucrative, um, it's often going to pay, be the case that other people are going to try to participate or compete with you and drive your profitability down. Now, we know that, of course, some businesses have been able to sustain very high returns in sort of businesses for a very long time. So this is not hard and fast. But but the basic concept of, you know, most companies have a, a finite period of an ability to invest incrementally at above the cost of capital. So, so that's the that's the basic framework and as you point out on expectationinvesting.com uh, there's a uh, there's a set of online tutorials and tutorial 8 actually walks you through this step by step and importantly there is a downloadable Excel spreadsheet. So anybody that's motivated can click down on the spreadsheet. Now, the spreadsheet that we actually populate uh, matches with a case study in the book, which is on Domino's Pizza. But of course, uh, so it's meant for you to map to, to what we've done so you can see that clearly. But of course, that it's easy to take off script. If you're working on a different company, you can, of course, put in your own inputs and the same framework should hold up uh, reasonably effectively. So that's step one. And... The other thing I'll just say about step one is it's to me, it's very important to have no preconceived notions if you can, right? Which is to say, I, I'm not going to make a judgment as to whether the expectations are too high or too low. I just want to understand what the world thinks, right? And so to me, the metaphor would be, you know, where is the bar set for the high jumper, right? I'm, I'm not going to worry about how high the high jumper can jump just yet. I just want to know, is the bar set at you know, five feet or seven feet or 10 feet. And, and, and that's the first place for me to start is to understand what, what is the task I'm up against here, right? And again, there's plenty of art in this, but it's not, it's not, um, it's a doable, it's very much of a doable task, especially with some of the tools that we, we put at your fingertips. And you definitely have great visualizations also in the book that we, we of course urge everyone to buy the book and complement with the website that you mentioned. Uh, so thank you, thank you. <laughs> it's so good when you can see it uh, mapped up like that. But but one challenge is that prices and expectations they change constantly. So so how often or when should investors revisit the expectations? 
Yeah, you, you know, the guidance would be something like, um, you know, one of two things happen, and they, by the way, often happen simultaneously. If there's been a market change in the price, so the stock has gone up or down a lot, um, it's an important thing for you to revisit expectations. And secondly, has there been new uh, value relevant information, you know, so that could be a strategic change, it could be a merger or acquisition or some sort of a spinoff or some some other change that would be material. So those are the things I think would prompt, uh, you know, kind of a full revisit of what you're doing. Now, just to, we haven't gone through all the steps yet. But just to be clear, if, if at the end of the day, this triggers, for example, the purchase of a particular stock, what we're trying to do is operate with a little bit of margin of safety, right? So in other words, we're not, we're not working with such degree of granularity and fineness that, that you have to read, you know, it's, it's a super well calibrated thing. You should, you should, there should be enough, plenty of room to, to, to move these things around a fair bit. So, uh, you know, the answer is big price moves, big informational changes might prompt you to go back and revisit what you're doing. And, you know, this is, you know, we just finished sort of the, the main earnings part of the season. You know, this is a time, this is a time where companies come out and, you know, most of them obviously sort of report along the lines of what people anticipate, but from time to time you get companies that do much better or much worse. And that would be a clear prompt to go back and say, okay, um, should, should I be changing the trajectories of what I think? That's some, I, I think many, many people struggle a bit with, uh, I mean, if you have a if you have your stock going down twenty percent, then you just uh, then you just buy more without maybe doing the proper analysis, as you say, um, or sell it, or sell it. Yeah. Uh, one thing I wanted to discuss a bit more: most of the concepts in the book was really either eye-opening or confirmations of of what I thought. One thing that was uh, that stood out a bit that I want to discuss was uh, beta. So. Uh, here at Red Eye, I, I work as an equity analyst, and um, we have a proprietary rating model where we answer over 100 questions about the management and the board, uh, the business model, competitive situation, as well as the financials, which in the end determines our equity risk premium. So I wanted to to know your view on that. Yeah, I think that's all that's all fine. And and let me just I guess I'll make a couple comments. One is just to be clear. And 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 you're right. I mean, you detected this because I was uh, I think we were both keen to skirt the we we ended up putting in the end notes if you actually read the actual end notes on <laughs> this. But we wanted to skirt the controversy on this because um there's it's it, it's a little bit of a diversion, right? But let's just be very clear that the cost of capital which usually has two key components, the cost of debt and the cost of equity, is a representation of the opportunity cost of capital providers, right? So let's not lose sight of what we're trying to estimate here. Now, the cost of debt tends to be quite explicit, so we can identify that pretty, pretty readily, and I think we can agree on that pretty readily. And by the way, that alone is pretty interesting and useful for the fact that we can, you know, usually credit spreads for particular companies will give you some indication about the the equity return prospects and so forth. Um, to your point, just to be like a little bit of finance stuff on this, look, um, there's a market risk premium and um, you multiply beta times that. So just for, for everybody to be on the same page, the idea is beta is a, a measure of how more volatile your company is relative to the market, right? So, or some sort of appropriate benchmark, but we'll say the market. 
And so if your beta is one, that means you're just as volatile as the market. The market goes up 1%, you'll go up 1%, down 1%, 1%, so forth. Right? If your beta is above one, that means you're more volatile than that of the market. And then if your beta below one means you're less volatile. Right. So I think the kinds of things you guys are doing with people and businesses and financials, that all makes a lot of sense. Now, the other thing I'll just say from a finance point of view is you can think about beta from the point of view of the company and it starts with asset beta and then it adds financial leverage. Right. So asset beta really is a fancy way of saying how volatile are the cash flows. And if I hear, I mean, the, the things like people piece, you know, it probably plays into it on some level. But if I hear what you're saying, I would agree in the sense that if you're, if you can measure the volatility of the underlying cash flows, and by the way, the pivotal concept there is almost always operating leverage, right? Which is for every delta, for delta denominator, delta sales, what is the delta EBIT in the numerator, right? So for every dollar change in sales, what is a change in earnings? Uh, you're going to have a pretty good sense of that. And then you're going to introduce financial leverage, right? So financial leverage will amplify um, that impact. Uh, or if you have negative financial leverage, in other words, you have more cash than debt, then that will dampen that effect, right? So I think I agree with you on all this. I don't, I don't want to get too worked up about this. I do think that it's important to understand that you're modeling the idea of opportunity cost. And when you're doing an expectations investing framework, the key is to try to capture what you believe is a solid estimate of opportunity costs of capital providers, right? So there are now many, many approaches to doing this, um, some more detailed than others. I mean, I'd be curious what you guys, you know, what kind of what, what kind of numbers you guys come out with. The only thing I'll just say is that I, from a practical standpoint, um, this is just me speaking now as, as both, you know, <clears throat> wearing my hat at Columbia Business School, but even as a practitioner, is that I've always liked the work by Aswath Damodaran on this, a professor at New York University. He is, by the way, incredibly generous about what he shares on his website. And every month he updates his estimate of the market risk premium. And, uh, you know, I think that gets you into low sixes for the, S for the market today, the S&P 500 in the United States. And, you know, we, he's been providing these data back, or he has these data back to 1961. And we just did a really simple exercise the other day, which was, Let's look at Aswath's uh, equity, you know, expected returns for the market based on his assumptions, and then look at the actual market total shadow returns for the subsequent 10 years. And so, you know, just see how practical it is. And, and it turns out the correlation is about a 0.7. So it's not perfect, but it's not horrible either, right? And so uh, it's actually, a, I, I think, a pretty good way to think about this particular issue. And then if you triangulate that with credit spreads, perhaps you triangulate it with other tools that may be at your fingertips, things like implied volatilities or even credit default swaps and those kinds of things were relevant. I think you can you can sort of create a pretty decent picture for most businesses about what the cost of capital should be. So I think it's always a, an interesting discussion. I think you you made it really clear. I think uh, I've heard many investors, say, including myself, ask, uh, I mean, Buffett has, has said that he used the cost of capital of, or I don't know if he's really said it, but the, the, the common thread is that he has said that he uses 10%, but I, I don't really believe it. <laughs> uh, well, Buffett said everything, right? So he, <laughs> he said 10%. He said you take a risk-free rate and add a risk premium, which is essentially what the CAPM does. So if you read enough of his writings, he's basically said everything that everything under the sun. 
by the way, one of the reasons I did that demoter and exercise is because I wanted to compare it to that 10% rule. And the 10% rule gives you a vastly worse, uh, worse outcome and worse correlation. So uh, that would suggest that what ASWATH is doing, by the way, and what all ASWATH is doing is, again, it's the same, basically, it's all expectations, the same thing. He's taking the stock the market levels, which he knows, he's using some normalized estimates of cash flows, and then he's backing into the discount rate that solves, right? So in a sense, these are all circular things that are doing the same thing. But the point is that that gives you a better you know, what, what appears to be, and again, we have data back to 1960. So we have 60 years of data, it appears to be a more, uh, a more reasonable way to think about that. Really interesting. Um, and uh, of course, we need to mention the risk free rate. And we got a question on on Twitter from uh, a guy, Will Kane, who asked if uh, investors should use today's ultra low interest rates in their DCF models, or project rising rates down the road. There, um, I mean, it's a, this is a tricky one. The um, there, but but the answer is, I think you should use prevailing interest rates. And by the way, I'll mention the new McKinsey valuation textbook, which you know, which I think the most recent edition came out in the spring of 2020, so a year and a half ago. They actually have a section where they talk about creating in quotes a synthetic discount rate to try to accommodate. Um, so um, the reason I've I don't make that doesn't make any sense to me is because this is the world we live in. It's not, we don't live in the world we want to live in. And um, by the way, this is just my broader comment to people who like to complain about central banks around the world, you know, complain about the Federal Reserve and so on and so forth. And by the way, as a hobby, you can complain about central banks and Federal Reserves all you want. I don't have a problem with that. What I what I think is, however, is that you have to be based in reality. So the world is not what you wish it were. The world is what it is. And so that's what you need to deal with. So so to me, um, that's the answer there. And by the way, of course, credit the markets themselves, including fixed income markets, are, again, forward-looking markets, right? So you can there are all sorts of things you can figure out by looking at markets and and so forth. So, uh, yeah, I would not, I would not advocate for that. Now, the other thing just to say, just to be a quick comment on the side, which is, it's important to be very humble about your ability to forecast macro variables. And, uh, you know, Phil Tetlock at University of Pennsylvania has just done extraordinary work you know, his, his famous book from 15 years ago is called Expert Political Judgment, where he actually documents the futility of experts in making these kinds of forecasts. And so anybody that sits around and says, I'm going to tell you interest rates will do this, that or the other, right? Um, you should be very skeptical about anybody's ability to do that. Now, that said, I think it becomes very worthwhile to think about scenarios and say, okay, let's think about the world. And Where's a world where this set of, of facts unfold? And here's another world where the other set of facts unfold and so on and so forth. And so just to contemplate those scenarios can be a very valuable exercise. But um, this notion that somehow I know that interest rates, and by the way, it's funny because I was looking back at my notes. I did a presentation in, in the summer of 2010, so 11 years ago, and I was at a conference with a bunch of chief investment officers of endowments around the United States. So these are very sophisticated, very large endowments. And there was a survey about are interest rates going up or down? And interest rates were like, you know, and of course, it was like, 
a complete, I think it was a complete uh, unanimous view that interest rates were going up. And this is, you know, and of course it was dead wrong. So the next year or on uh, which? Yeah, price? it was like whatever in the next 12 months or it doesn't, but it doesn't make any difference. So, so the point that, so, so my point, my punchline, all that is to be macro aware and macro agnostic. And again, let's go back to the same point on on the cost of capital, because I, th I, I think all, I, I'm actually very sympathetic to the idea that you know simple things like CAPM have a lot of limitations. Beta, I mean, this is the whole point is that Fama, Gene Fama and, and Ken French have written papers about beta and the limitations. And, and they actually have kind of a zinger in one of their papers where they say, this is like so limited, you shouldn't actually use it in the real world as a practical application, right? Now, there are people that have counter arguments and so on and so forth, but forget about, this is what I tell my students, forget about the formula. That get a, get that out of your head. Understand the concept, right? And the concept is the key animating concept, which is what is the opportunity cost to capital providers? And that is not an impossible task to at least get into something that's sensible from the point of view of a business person and from the point of view of an investor. So, so uh, I, I think that we don't need to, you know, this this should not be our religious war, right, on cost of capital. We can do better than that. Yes. So the second step of the expectations investing process is to identify the most important trigger for changing your expectations. And uh, which would you say are those which are the most important revisions in expectations that investors should uh, focus on? And I think that I want to, I, I would just slow, slow down for one second and say that um, the, the one of the most interesting uh, chapters in one of the most interesting tools in the book which I think is still very underutilized is this thing called the expectations infrastructure. And we, and we might talk about that some more, but the expectation infrastructure basically says, um, and, and there's a backstory about how we got into this because, you know, originally we were going to write a chapter, we were going to write three chapters and I was in charge of this, by the way, the first chapter was about those companies that are sales growth driven. Right. And I was like, oh, this is, you know, I got this. And this is great. And I actually wrote the chapter and it came out pretty well. And so I was pretty excited about that. And the next was going to be a chapter about those, co those companies that were margin driven, operating profit margin driven. And then the third was to be about chapter, chapter about companies that were investment driven. Right. And so I'm on that second chapter on operating profit margin driven companies. And, and I'm starting to think through the issues and I find myself immediately running into problem. And the problem is that the reason that margins go up or down is almost always because sales go up and down, right? So these are not independent things. There's fundamental interactivity between these things. So that got us to go back to this thing called the expectations infrastructure. So just to, I hope the listeners can visualize this on the, on the left of what we call value triggers. And these are sales costs and investments. And these are Every business everywhere in the world's got these three things, right? Sales, costs, and investments. Now, the problem is those are too blunt to map onto the value drivers, which is what we ultimately care about, which is sales, margins, and, and investment rate. So we need to refine them through what we call the value factors. And the value factors are six microeconomic shapers of these value triggers into the value drivers, right? And so... And step two of our of the book is to say, okay, let's figure out which of these value triggers is most important, and then to run through at the end of the the product of, of of the middle part is to run through scenarios of how good or bad things. So so now um, 
the question you pose, which is a great one, which is which of these value triggers is most important? And it probably won't be shocking to hear that for the vast majority of companies, the answer is sales and sales growth, right? And so it's obviously the largest source of cash coming in the door and so on and so forth. But it also is the one that triggers four of the value factors, right? Four of the six value factors are driven by sales. So sales is going to be by far the most likely to be the main thing for you to focus on. Now, is that ever not true? Um, it could be things like you think about disadvantaged businesses. You know, there are companies that have investment problems. So they're, ju they're just, they're not investing at a high return on capital. You might think about it like somehow a retailer that is opening stores for suboptimal, for some optimal economics. So for them, getting that straightened out will be more important than revenues, right? Because they just need to get the basic formula correct. But for the most part, that's the answer. And so the answer is almost always sales growth. And the, the, so, so the beauty of the expectations infrastructure and, and really the key to this whole second step is to allow you to do if-then scenarios, right? So what you ultimately want to do is to say, okay, sales is likely to be the most important value trigger. Let me think about, uh, and, and now you've already got through step one, you've already got a sense of what is priced in in terms of the sales growth rate. Now you have to sort of step back and say, okay, how good could the world be? Or how bad could the world be? So you're now doing a distribution of outcomes, scenarios for sales growth rate. And, you know, I know you guys, we, we talked a little bit about this before, but one of the ways to really inform that discussion is to use base rates, right? So just to take one step back, a base rate, you know, when, when we try to solve problems, the classic way for us to solve the problem is to gather lots of information, combine it with our own experience and input and project into the future. And certainly when most of us build models, that's how we do it, right? We sort of go, we gather a bunch of information, we do our models, we build it up, we think about, right? A base rate by contrast says, let's think about the world, the, like my issue, my problem, as an instance of a reference class, right? And the reference class is basically asking or answering the question, what happened when other organizations were in this situation before? So what we can do with base rates, for instance, is we can start to ask questions like, okay, this company has $3 billion of turnover. We can ask a question, let's say it's in the technology or healthcare sector, or whatever it is, we can now start to ask questions and say, okay, of all the companies with $3 billion of turnover that are in healthcare or technology, what has been the subsequent distribution of growth rates for the next three, five, and 10 years, right? And you can actually map that out. And by the way, these are not perfectly normally distributed curves, but you know, if you envision bell-shaped distributions, that's going to get you pretty much in the, into the neighborhood of thinking about these things properly. So you can start to take that framework and now reintroduce it into your step two of the expectations investing process and thinking about how good could things be and how bad could they be. Now, what becomes important is once you think about the upside scenarios and the downside scenarios is you again, go back through these value factors and say, if sales growth rates are much higher than what is anticipated, what will that mean for margins? Will they go up and how much will they go up? If it's much worse, how what will that mean for margins? Will they go down and how much more will they go down? So now you're creating these if-then scenarios. It's a very, very rich tapestry, right, to allow you to understand what's going on with the business. And so with the, prob with, with the outcomes, and then we can assign some probability to those outcomes, that allows us to go to step three. But that's the, that's the product of step two is to say, we're going to start to think about these these various uh, the, the value triggers almost always going to be sales, and we're going to think about scenarios 
and and the probabilities that those things actually occur that allow us essentially to shape an expected value for a particular company. I just want to mention there that actually you you have done a lot of work on on base rates. I would I would even call you the guru on on base rates. And I think if the listeners uh, just search for yeah your name and and base rates, they will find the, the long article on that. And you updated it quite a, a few years ago, right? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I would think, that, and, and I, I, you know, I, it's hopefully something we'll come back to. And and you're exactly right. If you Google Michael Mobison, the base rate book, you'll find that it's 150 something pages. But what I would say is that for most listeners, reading the first, I can't recall how many it is, but the first maybe 10 or 15 pages of that report are really all you need because it tells you about the ideas but more importantly, there's another little interesting embedded point about this is that um, some of this research allows you to understand the notion of regression toward the mean, right? And, and, and it's not just that regression toward the mean happens, which I think hopefully everybody understands that, but the rate at which it happens for various financial metrics. So when you go down the income statement and even to some facets of the balance sheet, there's different persistence of performance. And, you know, so for instance, to state the obvious sales growth rates, now again, not numbers, but sales growth rates are vastly more persistent than earnings growth rates, for instance, for, for an example. So having that information being, being in, uh, at your disposal, I think is an incredibly, an incredibly helpful thing. Yeah. So, so that, uh, the stuff, I agree with that, of course, the stuff on base rates, and we'd like to do more. And I think, you know, the, the biggest challenge is, that we and, and we did it for sales and sales growth rates, which again is probably the most important one. But we also looked at things like gross profitability. We looked at operating leverage, so we actually documented for various sectors the degree of operating leverage. And by the way, analysts struggle with this, and companies struggle with this. By the way, they don't really understand fully if revenues do this, what are the margins going to do, and so forth. And this is so. This is a very very nice way to <clears throat> to to again, fill out the expectations of a structure because the expectations of a structure allows you to, it gives you the tools to understand how and why margins go up or down. By the way, you know, today, obviously, one of the big issues that people are wrestling with is that of inflation. And, um, and what we see are a lot of companies raising prices. And it, the expectations of a structure is another really good tool for allowing you to understand how does that, what does that mean for margins, right? Because if the sales, the, the price increases are solely to offset cost pressures, that means no margin change, right? Or it, it may, may, may be, mean some margin degradation. By contrast, if you're able to price at or above the rate of all your input costs, uh, growth, that means margin p- could be preserved or actually expanded. So anyway, um, it's it's a it's, it's a very 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 powerful component, and I would just say you know that the if you said to me that what were the two tools that remain underutilized that um, you know in general one would be the expectations of infrastructure which I think is a really powerful way to think about if then scenarios and then second is base rates I actually think that's a really is it's it remarkably underutilized in the investment world given how powerful it is and you know more is you see it more and more happening in other fields by the way you know talking to phil tetlock i mentioned him a moment ago on forecasting and how experts are really bad you know phil's more more recent work last decade or so is on this idea of super forecasters which itself is really a fascinating body of research but one of the things they did is 
when they when people came to their forecasting tournament, they trained them or didn't train them. And people who got trained did better than those who didn't get trained, not sh shockingly. But it turns out one of the in interventions that's most important and useful is actually simply teaching. And as I'm talking about like an hour of teaching people about base rates. So it, it, it seems to be a lesson that people can int internalize and apply pretty readily. And yet, um, I don't know, I, I didn't see come to this till I was very late, relatively for me, late in life. And certainly, does anybody in college learn about base rates? I mean, I don't know. Do you guys learn about base rates in college? And it seems like it should be like, man alive, it should be like, you should never graduate from college for with any degree until you've learned about this concept, right? So anyway. Do you think uh, people are learning the wrong lesson from uh, looking at the, the largest US companies now? In what way? Like in, in the fact? No, I mean that. I mean they have more or less. Uh, um, they have been able to manage uh, with high sales growth, maybe higher sales growth than than what what's depicted in the in the base rate. Yeah. So that you may have seen. We wrote a piece about that earlier this year, and um, and this this will probably be a component of what we'll write about as we issue the next sort of version of all this stuff, which is. The, this goes back to our discussion about intangibles. And I think what's happened as intangibles have become more important, the key to intangibles is that there's greater potential for scalability, which means more rapid potential growth. But there's also greater risk of obsolescence, which means if your code or whatever is not relevant, it goes to zero very quickly. So if you imagine a bell-shaped distribution of growth rates, for instance, for a population of companies in the past, as intangibles become more important, I think what's happening is that bell is getting fatter, right? A little bit more on the right tail, which means companies, some companies are able to grow faster than what we had thought before, or at least what history indicated, not what we thought necessarily. And then a more rapid obsolescence. So some companies going to being irrelevant at a faster rate than what we had seen before. So I think that's relevant. Now, in the sports analytics stuff, you know, there's actually, there are plenty of techniques to deal with this. And one of the techniques that I've always found interesting and some, some method of which I'm likely, I think we're likely to try to utilize as well, which is you look at a history of base rates, right? And again, we, our data, the original thing in the original book was back to 1950, right? So this is a long time. You don't want to throw away the data, but what you end up doing is taking all the data in the series and then you weight it placing a greater weight on the more recent past and then a lesser weight on the more distant past, right? So you're, you're preserving all the data, but you're weighting things uh, as new information comes out. So because, because base rates are not just to be super clear, these are not chiseled in stone, right? These are not meant to be some sort of statement from on high. These are living, breathing, changing distributions. Um, so there, there's a risk of over-relying on them my argument would be broadly speaking, we're vastly underutilizing them, right? So the risk is much less not paying attention to them than misusing them, but you can of course misuse them as well. So just to be just to be thoughtful about that, um, that's one technique to to allow us to do that. So we wrote a piece about that earlier this year about intangibles and base rates. And I think that's a good admonishment just to be aware that uh, th these are not, again, these are not tablets to held down from high that you need to, to adhere to under all circumstances. When we're into the, the subject of intangibles, I, I also wanted to, to ask you about that, that many of these types of, of companies that we mentioned, the, the largest uh, technology companies, for example, but uh, many technology companies in, in, in general, 
share the same uh, characteristics in that uh, they invest a lot in marketing, in R&D and, and so on, which, uh, which they expense directly on the income statement. They don't, um, they don't put it as an asset and, uh, and uh, write it down over time. So uh, it should mean that uh, profits are, if they would do that, the profits would be higher on the income statement. And I just wanted to, to get your view on that as well as maybe a comment on what's your view on the, the Schiller PE, uh, I, I mean, the, the, which, which has been used as a check for the market valuation in general. So your observation is exactly right. Um, one of the things I would just emphasize is that in all these adjustments, and we've written a fair bit about this going back to a report we wrote a little over a year ago called One Job, which documented these data for Microsoft. And what it showed to very much to your point is that earnings are much higher than what is reported, but by the same token and mathematically offsetting it, investments are higher as well. So the first thing just to emphasize to all the listeners is that free cash flow, which is the cash available for distribution to all the claim holders, does not change with these adjustments. What changes is a reallocation, as you point out correctly, from something that was an investment embedded in essentially in the income statement. So we're, we're replacing it. So earnings go up and investments go up by the same amount. One of the things I always like to point out is certain US, iconic US companies, including Walmart and Home Depot, had negative free cash flow for the first 10, 15 years that they were public. Well, that seems weird, right? Because you know Walmart was profitable every single year uh, has been profitable for every single year for a very long time. But of course, the difference between Walmart of the 1970s and contemporary companies today, exactly what you point out, is that their investments were primarily tangible. right? And by the way, even Walmart was ahead of its time in technology, but, but for the most part, their investments were tangible, and that is new stores and fixtures and inventory and so on and so forth. So they had negative free cash flow. So, so this idea that we dwell on... Uh, income statements as you know, and, and by the way, so the poster child for all this, of course, is amazon.com, which is a company that's invested very heavily, as you point out in all these items like research and development and marketing and so forth. And, um, and sales and marketing. And uh, I think that the public statements, the earnings statement in particular has substantially misrepresented the underlying economics of the business. Now, the flip side is that their investments, which have always been large, are actually even bigger than people think, right? Which is actually, from an investor's point of view, a very interesting point because it, it again, compels you to think about the magnitude of investment and return on investment. Because if you understand the magnitude of return on investment, that's basically your future earnings, right? So that's all important. And just to give, again, some sort of grounding on this, I had mentioned sort of that the, the, uh, capbacks and intangibles were or even, you know, it's now two times intangibles to, to cap X, right? So that's, so again, in 20 years, a very, a, a very material change. On the Schiller PE, you know, we were actually in our, our PE multiple report, we wrote a little bit about Schiller PE, and I think that there had been some limitations. There are some limitations to that PE multiple that, by the way, um, Jeremy Siegel wrote about at University of Pennsylvania, and I'm sympathetic to some of Siegel's um, Criticisms, by the way, Jeremy Siegel and uh, Bob Schiller are good friends, so I think this is something that's a, an interesting academic debate to some degree. 
But I think your broader point is the wrong, the one that I want to keep focusing on, which is um, that if we are if we are markedly misrepresenting earnings, and I think we are, um, as a consequence, uh, measures like that will become less relevant, and certainly their historical, uh, you know, the historical multiples as applied to today's world become less relevant. So. You know, I'm pretty conservative on these things. I actually like to see history. I like to understand all the, you know, what's happened in the past. But I just think that this is such a market change over the last 20 or 30 years. You know, I started in the investment industry in the mid-1980s. And it wasn't until the early 1990s that there was the crossover between um, intangibles and tangibles. So in my investment career, uh, I've seen all this stuff happen and, uh, you know, as a consequence, people just should be very careful about simplistically um, looking at multiples and ratios like that. Moats is another area where you are a thought leader. And in the book, you write that the surest way for investors to benefit from expectations revisions is to anticipate shifts in a company's competitive dynamics. So what is your process for analyzing the competitive position and uh, strategy? I love that line, by the way. I still like that line. I like it. <laughs> like, who wrote that? Oh, that's good. That's good stuff. I agree. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I think we, you know, chapter four was a substantially revamped chapter, and it's about competitive strategy. Uh, obviously, we can't do it full justice, the topic, because it's a very rich, huge discipline in and of itself. But, you know, we try to come at it in three particular steps. Um, the first is what we call lay of the land. Um, and that's things like, Uh, drawing an industry map to allow you to understand all the different characters and competitors, uh, to think about concepts like profit pools, to understand uh, who's making money, economic profits, and relative size of markets. Um, there's a very nice old uh, concept around, it's called the market share test, which basically says how stable are market shares in a particular sector? The premise being when they're stable, that tends to be indicative of the potential for competitive advantage. And if they're moving around a lot, that tends to be um, unsettled territory. Um, and, and another one that I've always liked a lot is entry and exit data. I think this also gets ignored a fair bit, right? Which is, if you actually study entry and exit, it, it tends to be much more significant than people think and perceive, right? And so, and, and obviously entry exit has a lot to do with where you are in your life cycles in industry. So understanding entry exit, I think, as, as one of these other measures is a really good way to understand what I would call lay of the land. And then the second level is industry. And here, you know, I just would appeal to very conventional tools, uh, in particular, Michael Porter's work on five forces, I think remains a really powerful way to think about this. And in particular, we placed emphasis on barriers to entry. Um, my colleague at Columbia Business School, Bruce Greenwald, says there's only, you know, like there's only one barrier to entry, only one uh, force that matters, and that's barriers to entry. But I'm not sure that's quite true. But barriers to entry are very important, and, and rivalry is important as well. And then we also introduced there uh, the Christensen work on uh, disruptive innovation, which I also think can be very, very helpful. And then finally, uh, the third step is firm-specific advantage. And the idea is if your company, the company you're studying is generating high returns on capital, the question is what, it, what underlies that uh, positioning, right? Is it, for example, generically a low-cost producer? Is it generically uh, a, a differentiated product? And um, how do you think about that? And um, one of the ways to to disassemble that is to think about value chains in particular. And the one thing I'll say about strategy 
if you read Porter carefully, you know, one thing that Porter, the points he makes that I think is really important for people to always take home is that strategy is ultimately about trade-offs. And so strategically, for you to articulate your strategy, if you're doing one thing, you're not doing something else, right? And you've made a trade-off. And so to really understand a company's strategy, you have to understand the explicit trade-off choices that they've made. And uh, the value chain is often a very good way to expose that, to break down a value chain for a particular company relative to its peers and so on and so forth. Um, you know, we used in the book, our case study was Domino's Pizza, which, uh, you know, it's a franchise business, a great business ultimately. But one of the things that one of the decisions Domino's made that, you know, in some some uh, environments seems to be bad and some environments tends to be good is that they don't really have sit down place to eat pizza. So you don't go to Domino's to sit there and eat pizza. It's essentially a delivery or takeout type of organization. And so that's a trade off. Right. And there there are going to be bad things about that. In other words, people are not going to come and hang out at your store and so on and so forth. But there are lots of good things about that. For example, you can locate your your stores in lower cost places. You can uh, make the, the kitchen much more efficient. You can you know, you could simplify certain things in certain ways and so forth. And and so that's an interesting that last thing I'll just say on the strategy stuff is that anything about moats is is this idea of understanding trade-offs in particular, if a company is doing one thing, what is it not doing? It's hard as an investor to really, gosh, what do you, uh, like how to prioritize that? Because you know, not any, no company will be perfect in that sense. So you really have to deal with that. Yep, absolutely. So the last and uh, third step of the expectations investing process, it uh, defines the clear standards for buy and sell decisions. And it's a simple but not easy question. What is required to buy a stock? So if, you know, fall, just to be, just to reiterate what the output of step two should have been, hopefully I said it clearly enough, is you created these scenarios for your most important value trigger, so that's sales, and outcomes that were the result of those, right, after running it through the expectations infrastructure. And then you ran it through your models. And of course, that gives you ultimately a stock price. So now you have a high, bunch of high stock prices, a bunch of low stock prices. You obviously have where the, in the middle of that range is where the current stock price is. And then we want to assign probabilities to those scenarios coming to pass. Those probabilities should be or can be very much informed by base rates, right? So we have, we have the basic apparatus, hopefully, to allow us to understand outcomes and probabilities. And with those outcomes and probabilities, we, and, you know, obviously a stock price, <clears throat> we can then generate an expected value, right? So it's just the probability times the outcome of each of the different scenarios summed together. And so the, what we argue is you want to buy a stock, you want the uh, expected value to be meaningfully higher than the current price. And, uh, to, to, and, and, and a sell will be the exact opposite. Now, we are non-prescriptive as to what margin of safety is appropriate for any particular individual, right? Because, you know, you may, you might say, well, gee, if it's, it's within 10%, you know, there's so much error in what I'm doing, it's not going to be sufficient. I think that's probably right. So you might, you want, you want to pick whatever threshold gap between expected value and price that you think is sufficient to accommodate your mistakes potentially and other bad things happening and so forth. 
but that's basically it. So if it's cheap, you buy it. And if it's expensive, you sell it. And by the way, even going through the full process more times than not, the answer might be got nothing to do here, right? <laughs> like, I don't really know, like the market's got this about right, or I don't have any view that's different than the market. Because, because the other thing is important just to emphasize is that if you're buying it or selling it, what you're what you're saying effectively is that you have a view of the world, uh, a probabilistic view of the world that's different than what's priced in, right? And more optimistic or more pessimistic. So, so uh, th that's really the key. So that um, that is, you know, when you say what's required to buy a stock, we don't prescribe what any particular investor may deem to be appropriate, but that's the basic framework. And you also bring up the house money effect. And that reminds me of Dana Reilly's great book, Dollars and Cents. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, the house money effect is really a concept of mental accounting um, that was developed by Richard Thaler, I think before Ariely. <laughs> so Thaler, of course, won the Nobel Prize in economics. Um, and, you know, uh, mental accounting basically says that we tend to, even though all money is fungible and it all should be deemed to be the same, in our minds, we tend to put things in different buckets, right? Different accounts. And so, for instance, you might imagine that you bought a stock at 50 and then the stock proceeds to go to 100. So that's really good. What most of us typically do is we account, we think of the first 50 as, uh, you know, we want to be safe about that, right? Like we're risky. We don't want to, we want to risk that. And then the other 50, the new 50 is kind of like, ah, it's kind of free. So this is called, that's the house money, right? It's kind of free for us, you know, whatever. And so if it goes from 50 to 25, that's bad, but you know, it was kind of, it was easy, come easy, go kind of thing in the first place. And you know, the house money effect was really, I think, um, first designated by gamblers, you know, so if you go to the casino and you make money, you know, above your original bankroll, you sort of are looser with your winnings than you are with your original bankroll. So again, it's, um, it's, it's one of these things that's counter to pure economic theory, but completely consistent with human nature, right? We all do, we all do, we all do mental accounting all the time. And by the way, it's so funny, because I, I'm a, I'm a big, like mental accounting person, I do, I do all this stuff all the time. So I, I say to my wife, like, Oh, I got this. And so this is going to go to offset that. And she's like, that's not how it works. I'm like, yeah, that's how it works in my head. <laughs> so um, I think it's for the most part is probably pretty uh is pretty harmless but you know the, the the but the issue can be of course if you start to think about things um and and you know i i have to believe just in for example our speculative world we've lived in the last certainly since covid right last couple of years there have been a lot of investors that are participating perhaps for the first time and many of them probably done very well or could have done well in a short period of time and yeah, so they, there's probably a lot of the house money effect going on out there these days, uh, even now. A question I, I have to ask: in in the podcast you have done before and so on, you, we don't. The, the questions are rarely about your own investments, but I guess you you invest your own money sometimes as well. And, and do you then use the the expectations investing framework? You know, for the most part now, and this has been true for years, most of my own uh, investing goes into uh, our funds. And so, um, so, and obviously our funds are, you know, diversified funds and so on and so forth. So um, I don't do that much of it myself. Um, but, you know, it's interesting, you know, I, I have owned some stocks for a long time. I've owned, 
you know, the two stocks I've owned probably for the longest time, this is 20 plus years would be Berkshire Hathaway and amazon.com. And, um, and, and they're both ones, you know, cause this is probably a fair question, which I bought them. And, you know, by the way, they've gone way up and way down and way up and way down. I just haven't done anything with them. I don't sell them. <laughs> I haven't bought, I don't buy them or sell them. Right. So they've, they've both compounded at a pretty good, at a pretty good rate. And so it's an interesting, especially with amazon.com along the way. Um, it's probably pretty likely that had I done an expectations analysis, there were certain pockets where it probably would have appeared to be high expectations. Um, now that said, and, it, and we talk about this in the chapter on selling, there are certain frictions to selling too, right? Including tax consequences and the fact that you have to redeploy the capital and earn, sort of make back the taxes that you lost. And so for many, in, in many instances, and that's not true for, for example, non-taxable accounts, but for, for somebody like me, that is important. So, so I'm one of those, I am one of those path of least resistance is to do nothing or kind of the Buffett, you know, buy and, and my holding period is forever kind of thing. So sit on your ass investing as Munger says. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's, um, that suits me very well. <laughs> and you, you could have done worse with those two. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Um, something you wrote, uh, I think it was uh, last year, uh, you wrote a piece on public versus private and where you show that the payoff for private deals, so I, I switched subject a bit here, um, the payoff for private deals looks similar to an option where the uh, median loses money, but where the big wins make up for it. Um, considering that many businesses in the public mar markets, especially in technology, and we be maybe a bit biased here because we cover smaller technology firms, um, they are often early in their journeys uh, and they are often money losing. Um, and I wanted to ask, how, how do you think investors should incorporate this into their, their own portfolio construction? Uh, I mean, usually uh, we, we spoke about Munger and, and he has said maybe you should, you should own a handful of stocks and um, other, other thought leaders have said uh, similar, similar things. So I, I want to hear your, your view on that. Yeah, well, I think that, uh, I mean, a couple of things come to mind. Um, certainly, as you point out correctly, when you have those kinds of payoff schemes, um, some measure of diversification makes sense. Now, even in venture funds, you know, they have, will have 10 or 15 positions, right? So the premise is that they are going to have two or three things that sort of carry all the freight for the, for the overall portfolio. Um, the other thing is to say that, you know, work with which I'm, I'm sure you guys are familiar is Henrik Bessenbinder at uh, Arizona State, just has demonstrated that the majority of companies failed to earn treasury bill returns over time and a, a relatively small, and this is not just in the US, this is around the world, and a relatively small percentage of companies essentially pull all the value creation freight for everybody. Um, so if you, if you compound things over some period of time, it's not that different a, 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 a situation for public markets. In the report, by the way, you cite, um, you know, we, I, I love that chart, by the way, I thought that was cool, because we, we put in public equities versus buyouts versus venture. And it was a first, I don't think that's charts ever been done before that the, the, the data on buyouts and, and private and, and venture was brand new, and we added the, the public stuff. But again, we only use we only use public data over five years, right? Because that was the same, that was roughly the holding period for, for venture and for buyouts. So 
Now, look, the, the fact is somebody like a Munger would say, if you have access to just a great business, you know, whether it's the Costco of the world or, or an Amazon or whatever it is, and it just, it proves to be, you, you're convinced and it proves to be a great business, then you should latch your star onto that thing and hold on, right? So um, now the, the, the premise is that we can identify those, you know, and we can identify them early enough and, and so on and so forth. And that becomes, that, that seems to be a pretty tricky thing. So I think for most, for most of us mortals, the, the, the proper advice is to have some sort of, um, some sort of diversification. By contrast, if you really do think you've found a, a truly unique business with lots of runway for potential growth and so on and so forth, that's where maybe a little bit more concentration would make sense. But for most people, like that's a, that's tricky advice to, uh, to implement. And for small caps where there is no consensus forecast, uh, what is your view on using the expectations investing process? On- I think it still works. And, and that's, I mean, this is a good question because and, um, one of the things you can do is, you know, and, and, and for example, his, if there's zero record whatsoever, but if there's a, a little bit of history of the company, you have some sense of, for example, growth rates, what they've enjoyed in the past and profitability and so on and so forth. Um, the question is whether you can create a, a fairly credible um, uh, set of expectations, even yourself, that would solve for today's price that seem to be sensible given the overall environment, the industry in which it competes, the company's past performance and so on and so forth. And then you sort of go from there. So I'm sympathetic to the point that it's nice to be able to confer with consensus numbers or uh, other companies that are similar, doing similar things and sort of be able to sort of check against different sources like that. But it's still the same, it's still the same basic concept. And by the way, even if you're you know, if you're not doing expectations vesting, you're still projecting numbers, right? So, so, so this, you can, you can pose the same question of your model, um, either, either direction. So I think it still would work. Uh, And the hard part is when it's a nascent company and they have no experience almost from, you have no track record and there's just expectations going forward and how you used to, like, of course you can discount the cash flows, but there's another value asset and you tell us very good in the book about real options. So maybe you can elaborate a little bit on that. Yeah, I would just say that, you know, real options are important, but I would just say like we should, um, you know, the first thing to do is really to understand the underlying economics of the business. So, so I, I think you can still do that, but uh, just to, 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 to t- touch a bit on real options. So real options are analogous to financial options but they apply to real investments in quotation marks. So that's why we call them real options, right? So this is investments in the business. And uh, they typically uh, are valuable for, ter- for businesses that have certain type of characteristics. And the first characteristic would be that you have to operate in an industry that's fairly uncertain. And by uncertain, that means there are lots of range of possible outcomes. Now, interestingly, uh, people talk about vol- you know, volatility tends to be bad for discount rates. That means they're high, and hence that means present values are low. But of course, for an option, a higher volatility is more valuable, right? Because it's asymmetric. So you only you only exercise if things are advantageous for you, and it's the right but not the obligation to act. And so, 
um, volatility actually is good. So uncertainty tends to be good. Second is good managers. And by good managers, we mean people, executives who can identify and cultivate and ultimately exercise options intelligently. Now in the original book, the original version of the book, our options, real options case study was amazon.com. I mean, that was probably more lucky than anything else, but that that proved to be a pretty good example of a real options type of uh, company. And, you know, you think about AWS itself was probably just, a, 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 at the end of the day, a gargantuan real option that the company was thoughtful enough to cultivate and, 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 um, and ultimately uh, exercise. Uh, the third thing is it helps to be market leaders. And the reason that helps is it is because you often get the first call for option uh, for po possibilities for joint ventures and so on and so forth. And then the last thing, which is really important is access to capital. And so notwithstanding, for example, the dot com, there's a lot of really exciting stuff happening in 99, 2000. But then we went through a th three year bear market. And there were a lot of interesting businesses still uh, developing interesting technologies, but there's no one, there's no access to capital. So even if you had option potential, if you can't exercise your options, it's not very viable. The the uh, case study we used in the 2021 version of the book was Shopify, and you know I think Shopify actually has many of the same characteristics as a 2001 Amazon.com. It's obviously got much more solid footing and so forth, but. But the idea that, you know, there are a lot of different businesses, they think about this this way, they're global, um, and they're, they're a leader in what they do and so forth. So so we'll see how we'll get together in 20 years from now and see how our Shopify example worked out. But uh, but that's the that's that. So that's what a real option is. So the, the point of the discussion in the book is not that we want to kind of go crazy with real options and see them everywhere and place value on them everywhere. But by the same token, we also want to be aware that just because you don't have things you can touch and feel today uh, doesn't mean that there isn't value in some way, shape, or form. So it's it's you know trying to find that middle ground between being thoughtful about it and having the analytical tools at your at your disposal to be able to to think about it, but um, but to not go overboard. Maybe maybe Tesla is a good example of of that. <laughs> Well, you know, Tesla is a good example of maybe two things. One, I mean, certainly real options, and I think that there's something to that. Um, but also in that same chapter, we talk about reflexivity. And, you know, reflexivity is, you know, I think it was it's, it's an idea that's been around for a very, very long time, but it was popularized by George Soros, and it's basically a positive feedback. And, you know, we, we often like to think in economics that um, there's a very famous book, by the way, by Donald McKenzie called An Engine, Not a Camera. Uh, he's an economic sociologist, an engine, not a camera. So he's like, what, is, what, do you, what does that mean, right? And he, I, I think economists like to think, or even financial economists like to think of as ourselves as walking around with cameras, just taking a picture of the world. And even as investors, we, like, we think we have a camera, so we take a picture of what a company is. And McKenzie's argument is, no, in fact, we're, it's an engine because the very fact you build models and act on those models changes the nature of the world itself. And that's really, to me, what reflexivity is about, which is that we think of fundamentals and uh, sort of the the, uh, the the stock price as two distinct things. Uh, but in fact, it can be the case that the stock price can affect the fundamentals and vice versa, right? And so that's a good example, I think, where um, they, they've been able to create stories that allows the stock to do well 
and that's given them access to capital and it, like the real options things fit into this stuff as well. And, you know, one way to think about this, to make this really concrete is that you can think about, you know, we talk about in the ch in chapter 11 about buybacks, you can, you can sort of demonstrate mathematically that if a company buys back undervalued stock, that that benefits the ongoing shareholders, right? Essentially, the, the sellers lose out because they're getting less than what the thing is worth, and then the ongoing shareholders get more of the pie, essentially. But mathematically, the exact opposite relationship, which are true, if you sell overvalued stock, the ongoing shareholders benefit as well. So you think about a lot of these meme stocks, you know, again, you can you can debate about what they're worth in quotes fundamentally, but once their stock is much above what you think the fundamental value is worth, the degree to which these companies sell stock, and most of them have, that actually benefits the per, the per share intrinsic value of the underlying business, right? But mathematically. And so it's a very interesting thing that you're, there's a feedback between these two things. So reflexivity, I think, is also something that's really important to bear in mind in markets. For most things, it doesn't really, it's just not a big factor for most companies, but from time to time, it rears its head and becomes really significant. So I think, so Tesla, again, you can, you know, whether you love it or you hate it, there are, there are a lot of really interesting aspects of it. And then the other thing I think is when we talk about optionality, real options, that's very difficult to really um, think about completely at this juncture is just the value of data, right? So we, we just know that companies, around the world are gathering sort of unprecedented amounts of data on their customers and performance and so on and so forth. And the question is, how or can that be monetized in a way in the future that we don't understand today? So expectations investing is about reading the mind of the market, but as an investor, you also need to deal with your own mind. So what are your most common biases? Yeah, well, I already mentioned my mental accounting. <laughs> I, I, I don't know that I'm any different than anybody else on this stuff. You know, I think that the 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 ones that I typically talk about are uh, over precision and uh, confirmation bias. So I'm probably I'm probably as guilty as the next person on those kinds of things. I, I will say that. I do try to think a lot about this stuff. So I, I try to be mindful of it. Um, <laughs> Every time my wife says to me, are you sure about that? I say, I'm not sure about anything, <laughs> you know, but, but pretty sure. <laughs> but, um, so I try to be pretty mindful about it, but, but I think, I think I'm probably the same as everybody else. I mean, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity to spend some time with Danny Kahneman and, and, and Kahneman himself has conceded that he falls for every one of the biases that he talks about. And for heaven's sakes, if Danny Kahneman's doing it, there's no way a, a mortal like me is going to be impervious to that. So, yeah, I, I would say it's I would say it's the same stuff. Now, that said, um, you know uh, the the big ones for investors specifically, and we could talk about why that could be problematic, are over precision and confirmation bias. So, over precision is one. You know, there's so the broad concept is overconfidence. But there's a really wonderful book, by the way, by Don Moore recently that came out last year, I think. And it's about the whole, and Don was one of the great guys who's done work on overconfidence. And uh, he he dissembles overconfidence into three subcomponents. And the one I think that's relevant for our discussion is overprecision, which basically says that we think we understand the future more precisely than we do. And the way that manifests is that we project ranges of outcomes that are too narrow. 
Right. So by the way, it, most people don't have a problem laying out scenarios and saying, oh, if it goes well, it's this. And if it goes badly, it's that. And, you know, okay. And here's my base case and scenarios. People can do all that perfectly well, but almost invariably their first pass at that will be a range of outcomes. That's too narrow. That's going to reflect that over precision. So this is uh, the, the, the counter to that, right? The antidote to that is base rates, right? Cause base rates will show you that that's, that you're, you're being over precise. And then the second one is confirmation bias. And, you know, confirmation bias is this idea that we tend to seek information that confirms our prior beliefs. And we dismiss, discount or disavow information that goes against our views. And if there's information that comes in that's a jump ball, it always goes in our favor, right? Now, the reason that's important, because one of the essential tasks of an investor is to be a good information updater. Right. So you have a prior belief of the world. This is, by the way, super relevant for expectations investing. You have a prior belief of the world. New information arrives. It is uh, your responsibility to adjust your beliefs in the right direction and to the degree to which you can do it, the right magnitude. And what confirmation bias does is blocks that process. Right. So the degree to which you can dismantle confirmation bias. Uh, that's really important. So how, how do you do that? I mean, that's a tricky one as well. But one of the key things is to write things down and start to keep track of your forecasts. And there's, uh, and, and that will allow you over time to get better calibrated to be, to be able to make better probabilistic forecasts. And if you really strive to make good probabilistic forecasts, um, you you will practice it, but you have to, you have to sort of shake off the confirmation bias. Um, I tweeted uh, yesterday about there's a little update about super forecasters. And one of the one of the observations is super forecasters are very well calibrated. And, and so in plain words, what that means is when they say there's a 70% probability of something occurring, it happens 70% of the time. When they say 20%, it happens 20% of the time, right? And so they're very good at putting things in the right probability bins. And Phil Tetlock, again, University of Pennsylvania, uh, sort of responded to that tweet by saying something like, how do people get so good at this? They practice, practice, practice. And so the sooner people start to practice these things, the more they can uh, fend off over precision, the sooner they can fend off confirmation bias. So you, you have to be pretty active about it, but those are some techniques that would allow people to be more effective. Yeah, that tweet is from November 15 then. And uh, one way to help us with all these biases and like you are also a thought leader on decision-making. So technology, artificial intelligence is coming and we know that computers are unemotional. So we can we must we must ask you how you think that expect if the expectations investing process could be automated and how would that work? Well, it's an interesting question. Um, I think that I, I do think it's a valuable question to pose about the investment process in general. Are should components of this be or can components of it do they lend themselves to being systematic versus judgmental? And um, my guess is that some things are systematic, could be systematic versus judgmental. There is, um, I'll just say that there's a 
fascinating passage in Danny Kahneman's new book, well, with Olivier Siboney and uh, Cass Sunstein called Noise. There's a fascinating little passage where they talk about a scientist who studied people and he he asked them like how they made decisions and he created a model of those people based on what they told him. And then he went out and observed the performance of those actual people making decisions. And it turns out the model of the people did better than the people themselves, right, in making these decisions, which is itself a fascinating thing, right? So people know what they're supposed to do, and they can explain what they're supposed to do, but whether they do it every single day is another question. So that's one aspect of it. The second thing I will say, though, is that, and and I should mention that my oldest son is a, a data scientist and has spent a lot of time studying machine learning and artificial intelligence. And so he's my kind of go-to guy. So I, you know, when I, when I have questions about these kinds of things, and I think that they're, by the way, these are wondrous tools and these are going to, they're going to do things for our lives in the next uh, de- upcoming decades that are going to be, uh, I think on the balance, very, very good. The challenge is that and judgment's not going to go away in the investment world. And the, and the reason is that, there's no AI program or machine learning program that can anticipate how the future is going to unfold, right? And so, for instance, we might say, you know, we might sit around and you know, we'll have a beer after we talk and we'll say, hey, you know, let's talk about the future of electric vehicles. And, you know, let's, let's pretend that electric vehicles will be X percent of all vehicle sales and how our infrastructure is going to change to accommodate that and what that means for, you know. And so it would be very clear that we'd be able to run through a bunch of first order effects, second order effects, third order effects, maybe even fourth order effects, right? And these would be lots of interesting and complicated things, but they would be ultimately judgments. And um, it's very, it, there, there is no computer program that can do that now, right? Because you have to train these things based on what has happened in the past. And so as a consequence, there's going to continue to be, certainly in the world of investing for the foreseeable future, uh, a prominent role for the for judgment. Now, I mean, you could debate, I, I just mentioned about how experts are really bad at forecasting, you could argue that humans are not going to be very good at forecasting at all. But again, we also know that some subset of few people are actually pretty good at this. So if you train yourself and think about things properly, I think there's some hope that judgment will continue to be a valuable component of overall decision making. On the on the concept of decision making, I mean, I think in, in, in the in your book, Think Twice, you mentioned uh, some tools that that people can use to improve their decisions. Well, one is, of course, uh, checklists before the before the decision is made. Uh, another one is uh, a pre mortem. Maybe you can tell tell our listeners a bit on what 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 is a pre mortem. Yep. So pre mortem is uh, you know so we all know about post mortems, right? So in other words, the patient has died. And we gather and say, given the information we had at the time, could we or should we have done something different to lead to a better outcome, right? So essentially, we are learning from our mistakes. And we're also very familiar with scenario analysis, right? So we stand in the present, we look into the future and say, again, upside, downside, and so forth. As as the name implies, a pre-mortem is actually a third exercise. It was developed by a psychologist named Gary Klein. And what we do now is we launch ourselves into the future and think back to the past. In particular, what we do is we pretend like we made a particular decision, let's say in our instance, an investment, and that this investment turned out very poorly. 
right? So like, so poorly, uh, we don't want to talk about it, right? <laughs> we don't, we don't want to see each other in the hallways kind of thing, right? And so um, now this is November of 2022, right? So it's a year from now, roughly speaking. And uh, what we all do, and we, we, we presume this investment, we made it and it turned out poorly. And then what each of us does is independently writes down the story as to why this investment turned sour. Right. And it turns out that the pre-mortem, for reasons that has have some sort of intellectual, interesting psychological components to it, that the pre-mortem opens up the mind a little bit to allow people to think about and contemplate scenarios that they wouldn't have otherwise contemplated. Um, by the way, I, was, I listened, there was an interesting podcast with Gary Klein, and he actually talked about another aspect, which I found fascinating, which was often in, in, in group settings, there's a very hierarchical structure. And so the senior person tends to take up most of the oxygen and it becomes very difficult to voice your views, you know, politically or otherwise, if you're one of the more junior people. But if everyone's asked to write a pre-mortem, right, the, the issues get, get surfaced to the table. And, and maybe I'll just tell you one quick story on this, which I found interesting. So we, I was at, this is at a prior investment firm and we, we had an investment committee, actually was part of this committee. So I was one of the committee members on this. And we had a team come in and they presented an investment idea. And, and, and these guys had done great work. And it was a multi-hour presentation. And we asked a bunch of questions and they went back and did a ton of follow-up work. And then they came back and they presented another few hours on this. And again, lots of back and forth questions and so on and so forth. Well, it turns out that the discussion, like we ended up focusing on just a handful of things based on sort of the, you know, I don't know, it was like the path dependence of the conversation. So at the very end of it, I said to the chief investment officer, I said, we need to do a pre-mortem on this thing, right? Because we need to say, we're going to pretend we do this and it turned out badly because I'm not sure we got all the issues on the table. And it turns out we did a pre-mortem on it and like two or three significant things ended up surfacing that had not been part of our five or six hours of discussions. And by the way, <clears throat> again, I'm not blaming anybody. I mean, this is like the team, the investment team was doing their thing and they were engaged and they were responsive and so on and so forth. It just was the nature of how the conversation flowed. And there's an example where, again, now we identified a couple nodes that were relevant that hadn't been fully vetted before. So pre-mortem allowed us to see that in a more effective fashion. So it's a really cool little technique. By the way, it's cheap, it's inexpensive, it's easy to understand, it's easy to implement, and uh, I think can, can give, again, people some, some good insights. You really draw from so many different multidisciplinary themes and different topics. It's uh, fascinating. And something that I thought about is, like, how do you decide which is your next discipline that you want to evaluate and look at? And which one is it right now for you, for example? <laughs> I wish I had, a, I wish I were disciplined about any of this kind of stuff. Um, well, we're working on now, um, it's uh, some more stuff. There are two, really two topics. One is additional work on the concept of maintenance versus growth spending for organizations. And, and part of this was inspired by a recent PhD thesis at Columbia Business School about, and the, and the paper's called Estimating Maintenance CapEx. And um, the author, you know, I think quite provocatively claims that depreciation amortization, which is typically deemed to be sort of a proxy for maintenance CapEx, substantially understates the actual amount. And of course, that's important because if you're spending less on 
actual if of your capex budget less is going to growth and more is going to maintenance than you think that means your growth prospects are going to be more limited so that's one thing the second one i'm working on is a topic which i've always th i thought a lot about and this is going to consolidate a bunch of different threads on the topic of feedback feedback is really in, hard in the investment business in part because, I mean, the ultimate feedback, of course, is how your portfolio performs. So let's just be clear that that's ultimately what we're after. But the question is, can we create sources of intermediate feedback that allow investors and portfolio managers to be more effective? And so this report is going to go through um, a little bit of what are the raw materials of the types of people who are good um Good, 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 good to have on board in terms of the investment process in general. How do we? Um, interesting questions like, if you're an investor, you know, how do you think about the balance between practice and play? Right. So if you're on a football team or you're a tennis player or whatever it is, and, and certainly you're at an elite level, you know that there's some balance between practice and play. In the investment industry, what is that balance? What should it be? And what, what does practice mean? And what does play mean? Those are interesting questions. Then the next section is really how are we embedded in organizations? So we have our own cognitive abilities, but that can be enhanced or detracted or uh, something in between based on our organization. And then the last is how do we get, how do we get better uh, at giving ourselves feedback? And I mentioned the, the Tetlock stuff. And this is really about creating a little system for yourself to improve your ability to get calibrated, your ability to make probabilistic forecasts. And the only way to do that is, as I mentioned, is to practice. And so how do you set that self, how do you self yourself, set yourself up to do that? By the way, what you'll find is when you start to have to attach probabilities to all sorts of stuff, immediately you're going to start searching for base rates, right? So that's a nice little feedback that getting people to be more overt about uh, feedback, uh, base rates. Can't wait to read all of those interesting topics. <laughs> so this being a book podcast and knowing you own several thousands of books and we see a couple of them in the background right now, uh, we have to ask you which, uh, if you can name three books that have influenced you the most to make you the person you are today. Yeah, that's an impossible question to answer. But um, I, I, think <laughs> I think I'm going to give you... I think I'm going to give you three books that start with the letter C. How about that to make it uh, to make it interesting? Um, the first, the first for sure, actually does uh, is probably the number one book, and that's Creating Shareholder Value by Al Rappaport. And so, I've mentioned this many times. It was for me a professional epiphany, and um, yeah, I mean, it really changed my life. It continues to this day to change my life, and. The, the three lessons that I learned from that is that it's about cash, not accounting numbers, and that strategy and valuation have to be thought of together when you're doing valuation work, and that stock prices reflect a set of expectations. And so, obviously, it was a joy to write the original version of Expectations Investing with Rappaport back in the late 1990s, early 2000s, and it was an even greater joy to write the, the, the revised version with him this most recent past. He's now... He's now in his late 80s. He's a delight. I mean, I talk to him frequently. Uh, the the intellectual spark is, uh, or a flame really is full force with him. And we have great conversations. And, you know, it's shocking how much, you know, I think we're learning together and challenging. But I will just say that 
as someone, you know, for me to have someone like that, uh, to, to be a mentor, to be a collaborator, to be a teacher, um, you know, behind the scenes, it's hard for people to know, like, well, there are a lot of days as a teacher, I, I wonder about my, you know, I, I, I'm concerned for my own types of issues, and I don't understand things. And I just talk to him and just talking it all out becomes really powerful. Is he like your mentor in that sense? Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. And so the second would be Complexity uh, by Mitch Waldrop. I'm not sure that that today Complexity would be the best book to read about the Santa Fe Institute, but it, it's an extraordinary book about the early days of the Santa Fe Institute. And the Santa Fe Institute itself has been a very powerful influence on me professionally and personally as well. And so it's really, uh, the Santa Fe Institute is a non-degree conferring institute um, that is, has no disciplinary boundaries and studies evolving complex systems. And uh, Waldrop captures that, by the way, one of the canonical examples of an evolving complex system is the stock market, right? So that's that would be my second C. And then my third C would be uh, Consilience by E.O. Wilson. There's a be- the book that's on my nightstand now is a beautiful new biography of E.O. Wilson by Richard Rhodes, who himself is a beautiful writer and biographer. And um, consilience is a very old word. It's about the unification of knowledge. Um, and it's about taking ideas from various disciplines. For those who are Charlie Munger fans, of course, this is exactly a Munger type of mental models type of approach, right? So learning the big ideas from various disciplines, bringing them together, uh, that's what consilience is about. And you know, what I, I reading this book about Wilson, I didn't know some of the debates that had been happening. He was on the he was a, made a, a tenured faculty member at Harvard when he was very young in his late 20s. And he was actually there around the same time as James Watson, who won the Nobel Prize, obviously, for his work on on DNA. And the 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 sense was that biology should move toward molecular biology, right? Which it should be, this should be about this chemistry, should be about the fundamental components. And that guys like E.O. Wilson are, you know, they're counting, they're they're collecting butterflies or ants or whatever it is, right? But it turns out that this is actually what consilience is all about. And, And Wilson in this book makes this argument that reductionism has been incredibly powerful scientifically in the last 400 years. But for us to advance, really, it's about the unification of knowledge. It's about bringing things together. And many of the vexing problems in our society are at the intersections of disciplines. And so it's bringing, it's taking down these disciplinary borders and bringing things together. Uh, so both complexity and consilience, the, the Santa Fe Institute very much encapsulates um, both of those. I think that was a really interesting end to a fascinating conversation about you and, and your book, Expectations Investing. Um, where can our audience follow you and, and all your work? The uh, the probably best way to go is at uh, my Twitter handle, which is at MJ Mobison, M-A-U-B-O-U-S-S-I-N. And uh, usually almost everything I do, I eventually will find its way on the Twitter handle. Great. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by RedEye. You can follow us on Twitter at IB underscore RedEye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve the podcast, we really appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. 
For the sound engineering of this podcast, we thank Gustav Tesch and for this editing, Carl Berryholtz. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.